0: Hey, everybody, it's Mike from The Mike Wagner Show, powered by Sonic Web Studios. Visit online at SonicWebStudios.com for all your needs. And brought to you by our official sponsor, The Mike Wagner Show, international war-wing author, me and Bolson Zia Missing, available on Amazon and peer-perfecting and book He's backed by a popular man, author, lawyer, and first civilian promoted to professor of law at West Point, a U.S. military academy. He practiced law in New York City, also a presenter, prosecutor in Brooklyn. He also won a case in 2012 after West Point retaliated against him for speaking up about wrongdoing. And his new book shows how innocent people can overcome the, the resistance of truth and also makes a compelling case for reforming our adversarial legal system, he was on the program before talking about the cost of loyalty, dishonesty, hubris, and failing in the U.S. military. Now, a new book is about about the failing of justice system called "The Plea of Innocence: Restoring Truth the American Justice System." Live, ladies and gentlemen, from the Plus Studios, um, so, somewhere in the United States, uh, the <laughs> author of "Cost of Loyalty" and backed by a popular man. Just a great conversation highlights some of the wrongdoings at West Point. And now we're going to do the same thing with "The Plea of Innocence," ladies and gentlemen author, Tim Bakken. Tim, <laughs> good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for joining us. Once. Uh,
1: hi, Mike, good to see
0: you. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you on again, too. We talked about the cost of loyalty, dishonesty, hubris, and the failure in US military. And one thing that still stood out in that conversation was, was being disciplined for wrong color of chalk. And I don't know why I got that. So.
1: <laughs> well, that is true. I was uh, saying that in authoritarian institutions, there are structures And there are rules, and regardless of whether the rules seem to make sense, if they get institutionalized, they will stay. And in this particular instance, I guess I was telling the story about how one academic department required its instructors to teach a certain curriculum, and they had to write on the board, the blackboard, certain things with the same colored chalk. So one point required pink chalk, another point required purple chalk, and a third point required brown chalk
0: <laughs> and, and we still don't use colored chalk except on the sidewalks so, we, we use that. <laughs> <laughs> so that. And, and of course you know the book as well too um you know, you know the cost of loyalty we also have the plea of innocence restoring truth the american justice system and before we talk about once again tell us how you first got started in a very quick manner
1: uh, west point the united states military academy is an hour's drive north of new york city and it's the oldest military academy. It started in 1802, and it had never hired civilians until the mid-1990s. Sam Nunn, a senator from Georgia, and John Glenn, a senator from Ohio, pushed them to add intellectual thinking diversity uh, to the academy, and as a result of that, they were compelled to hire civilian instructors. I was one of them, and I started in 2000. I had been teaching at other colleges. Prior to that, I had been a prosecutor in brooklyn prior to that and i went to west point and taught constitutional law and criminal law which i still teach
0: mm-hmm. and and of course you know, no stranger challenging institutions especially claiming the military and legal systems and um you know someone who don't value truth and you also have a new book called the plea of innocence restoring truth the american justice system and um you, you know tell us uh, you know what first inspired you to uh, write the book I thought
1: a long time ago about why there's no plea of innocence in the legal system and routinely it is the reason why i started thinking well maybe there is a place for people who claim to be innocent to have special procedures for them after all we have lots of procedures for people who are guilty and we know they're guilty for example we have a rule that excludes evidence that was taken in violation of the constitution by the police even though that evidence could connect somebody to a crime but we don't have any rule that says the police or the prosecution has to go out and find exonerating evidence that could show that somebody did not commit a crime we have an adversarial system where we say that once charges have been issued it's up to the defense to pro- provide a defense And it's up to the defense if a client claims that he or she is innocent to go out and find that exonerating information. But what I've argued and what I think is almost without dispute, poor people and people who are in jail pending charges, uh, pending their trial, do not have the ability to go out and find exonerating evidence. And I'd say one asterisk around that, Mike, and that is in reality, almost nobody has enough resources to fully defend himself or herself in a trial against the government. The government has an obligation to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but it has a lot of resources. Individuals, unless they're very wealthy, will have a somewhat truncated defense. People who are unable to provide a somewhat truncated defense Will have a somewhat less defense, and that's no disparagement of their lawyers. It just means that they have less opportunity for to look for facts that would show their innocence. Let's
0: mm-hmm. Th- also mention on public defenders as well too that being provided who are poor as well too. And do you think the role of public defender has been greatly diminished? Uh, you know, through time, do things gotten better, or do you think it's just like you know there's this, you know really no need though?
1: I think public defenders do an excellent job. My experience with them is a positive experience in that they are committed to their clients. They probably do not have enough resources, I think that's probably without dispute also, but the reality is in our system the prosecution has all the authority. It is the office that can acquire evidence, it can go to judges and obtain search warrants, it can subpoena witnesses, it works with police and other law enforcement agencies, it knows who all the witnesses are. And I know that because I was a prosecutor myself back in the day. And they have great responsibility, prosecutors, but they have authority connected to that responsibility, unlike what anybody else in the legal system has. Certainly, defense lawyers are absolutely necessary, but they simply don't have the authority in our system. We could give them all The money in the world and they still wouldn't have the authority of prosecutors to obtain search warrants uh, issue subpoenas and the like
0: Mm -hmm. and and of course you know justice depends on the truth and then why is truth not the primary goal of the adversary legal system and of course there's been a lot of human error that has gone as well too
1: it's interesting i probably can give a quick example about how human error enters the system and how You or I could be in a real jam if somebody made an error in identifying us. From time to time, I've been known to go to a donut shop late at night just because my uh, supper wasn't quite what I thought it should be. And I've (laughs) grabbed a donut. It might be five to nine, let's say. And then I'll be walking home or maybe I'll get in the car and take a drive. But let's say I'm walking home from some donut shop and at 9.05, I make my way home and I eventually go home and next day I go to work. If the next day arrives and a detective comes to me and asks me, where were you last night at about nine o'clock? The response of most of us is, because we want to help the police, we're accustomed to obeying authority for the most part, we will say, I was at the donut shop at nine o'clock last night. What we don't know is that somebody at 905, not us, of course, because we had the donut, I bought the donut at five to nine and left. Uh, somebody robbed the donut shop at 9 5 and the clerk for some reason maybe because I'm a regular at the donut shop said yes I know that that guy identified me and then the detective suspected me put me in a lineup and the clerk uh, clerk uh, pointed me out as the person who was the robber of course I was not the robber but because the main witness testifies that I am the robber and I admitted being there at about nine o'clock that's very compelling evidence. And it's very likely that I'll be convicted and probably a person in that situation, especially if he has a criminal record, will go to a prison for a lengthy period of time. When we're in a jam like that, the only thing that can help us, because to almost everybody, including the police, that detective who talked to us, it looks like we are in fact guilty, but we're not. Uh, The only thing that will help us is trying to find other evidence, which might be a witness that saw us walking at 9.05 last night with the donut we just bought and were eating at that time. If I'm in jail and I don't have resources, I can't find that exonerating
0: witness. Mm, That's rather interesting as well, too. And of course, in the book, it talked about um, a 19-year-old kid in Washington, D.C., had no criminal record, whatever, but he happened to be like in the line where it's like, you know, a murder happened and everything else and uh someone pointed him as a victim and Harris is like you know he didn't do anything wrong and still convicted and there was a case in florida as well too which i'm tying in that there was a a, a gentleman right there that um he just happened to be like you know his back was turned um you know you know you know or somebody got murdered he didn't know about it and they turn on and arrested him because he just happened to be there i mean that mm-hmm. stuff is just happening all the time and there was like no proof and they still convict We do see it, and it seems to be more frequent, but
1: what I'm arguing is that it's actually not more frequent. The justice system is convicting innocent people. It's just that we're finding out now who's innocent, because in some cases, we can afford to put more resources into them, such as when somebody's been convicted of a homicide and sentenced to death. Uh, In... Our country, we, of course, in most of the states have the death penalty, and we continue to apply the death penalty. One study from 2014, and it's probably the most reliable study so far, studied death penalty sentences and the people who were exonerated, uh, that is who further investigation showed, did not commit the crime, even though they were sentenced to death. The percentage of those people that were found and estimated is 4.1%. That is to say, of all the people who received the death penalty in the United States between 1973 and 2004, 4.1% of them were actually innocent. And Mike, a lot of people will uh, think 4.1% maybe doesn't seem like that much, but certainly if we're in the 4.1%, it's very overwhelming, and to put it in a different context, 4.1% means 400 innocent people convicted out of every 10,000, or because we have about 1.7 or 1.8 million people incarcerated today, it means probably about 70,000 people who are in prison or jails have been convicted but are actually innocent. It's a problem that we're just learning about now because DNA evidence, for example, DNA testing, uh, can tell us for sure that somebody didn't commit a crime. For example, if somebody, uh, if there's blood found on a victim and the defendant was convicted of killing the victim, and we have a new DNA test today that tells us the blood on the victim, and there was only one assailant in that case, is not from the person who's convicted. And in prison, we know we've convicted an innocent person. We didn't have that until 1989. That was the first case case first time dna was used to exonerate somebody who was convicted but who was indeed innocent
0: mm, that is interesting i think it's made great strides as well too and of course um you know this also made it the thing too with the eight major source of wrongful conviction you also have like with the human error and some other factors maybe you just go over some of the um eight major sources of um you know wrongful convictions some can be reversed and yeah some cannot
1: well yes and I would ask your listeners to listen to these, and I'll I'll lay them out and uh, ask, what is the main thing that exists in all of these reasons for wrongful convictions? They were pointed out in 1932 by a law school professor who said, I see a lot of innocent uh, people being convicted, and here are the reasons. One is wrongful identification by witnesses. They're not trying to uh, say that somebody who didn't do it did it they're just making a mistake second uh, confessions that are unreliable people confess to crimes that they didn't commit in fact we know that of probably about 3200 exonerations that we've been able to record in the last 20 years 15 percent of the people who are exonerated had pleaded guilty these are people who pleaded guilty while knowing they committed a no crime Uh, Third reason is that prosecutors make errors or they may withhold evidence. That's not to say they intentionally withhold evidence, although perhaps some do, but it is to say that they should have turned over evidence that would have shown that somebody did not commit a crime. Four, witnesses lie. Many times prosecutors have to make deals with insiders who themselves are questionable people, And they will lie to protect themselves and obtain a deal from the prosecution. And uh, five, we see, uh, strangely enough, almost nobody really realizes this. This is not a great uh, number of why people are convicted, but it's one of those things like you see on ESPN every now, now and then. Did you know? Did you know that when a family member testifies on Your behalf at trial, it is more likely that you'll be convicted of the crime because the jury is presumably—and this is not my uh, study, but uh, other uh, study—jurors will believe that the family member is lying to benefit the defendant, and he would have been better not to call a family member in the first place. And then also, we could we could break these up and make them eight, but I'll just add one more for number six. Uh, defense attorneys defense attorneys of course make mistakes themselves now i asked at the beginning what's the one criterion that overlays all of these it's not um uh, dna it's not scientific evidence it's not a person in a lab coat going into a courtroom and explaining what happens it's human error and if we knew in 1932 what's causing innocent person convictions and today everybody agrees that these are the same things that cause innocent person convictions, then despite DNA, despite advances in forensic science, we have to say, we have to concede that human error is inside our legal system and we can't fix it. And that's necessarily so. It will probably exist until the end of time. So what I'm saying is, The only way to overcome human error is to find clear evidence that shows somebody is mistaken. And the evidence in the donut shop case, for example, would be three witnesses sitting on their lawns or on their stoops watching me go by and saying hello to me. And they can say I was eating my donut at 905 and therefore was not at the donut shop at 905 committing the robbery.
0: Too bad they didn't ask you what flavor it was. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Usually just a glazed donut and hot chocolate. <laughs>
0: oh, there you go. I think I'll one up you on that one. We'll go for donuts and talk about that. And of course, you mentioned about. Um, Defendants being scared. Of course, you know, a new process is involved in everything. Of course, you know, a character as well, too. It's also in the book and a very interesting point we like to talk about. But first, listen to the Mike Widener Show at the MikeWidenerShow.com, powered by Sonic Web Studios. Visit online at SonicWebStudios.com for all your needs. Look at a professional website without breaking your budget. Sonic Web Studios is the answer. Sonic Web Studios offers fast, affordable custom web designs that blow the competition away. Call today, one 1-800-303-3960. It's 1-800-303-3960 or email to support at SonicWebStudios.com. Mention the Mike Weidner Show. Get 20% off your first projects. Sonic Web Studios, take your image to the next level. Also, time to give an official shout-out to our official sponsor of the Mike Weidner Show, international warring author, Mia molson If you love fast-paced mysteries, you'll love Missing by Mia molson Available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing is fast-paced and intriguing with an unforgettable twist. Takes place in four countries, two strangers, one target where truth is illusion and those you love will be the first go missing. It's available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing by Mia Molson has got great reviews. And Eve and enjoys by Howard celebrities, including Joanna Cassidy, Forge Riley, and Williams. So grab your copy today for Ghost Missing by Mia Molson Zia. Available on Amazon. Also check out the Mike Weidner Show at the MikeWidenerShow.com on over 40 podcast platforms. Take the Mike Weidner Show with you on any mobile device. Subscribe to the Mike Weidner Show on the YouTube channel. Follow the Mike Widener Show on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok today. And for great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com, check out the Mike Weidner Show Podcast. T-shirts, pop sockets, throw pillows, tote bags, and hoodies makes great gifts 24-7. Go to Amazon.com, check out the Mike Weidner Show podcast. And for more great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com slash me and Zia for great books like missing, once and wrinkles, also t-shirts, pop sockets, hoodies, and more. And support the Mike Widener Show on Anchor FM, PayPal, and the MikeWidener Make sure you do so today. We're here with author uh, Tim Bakken of um, "The Plea of Innocence: Restoring Truth to the American Justice System" here on the Mike Wagner Show. And um, also, we talked about you know how um, innocent people are being um, you know convicted wrongfully. There's also character as well too. Like say, um, you know, a, a previous um, criminal walks into a, a donut shop, just wants to grab a donut, and walks out. You know, he's committed some crimes before, too, like, say, robbery, assault, and battery. And all of a sudden, you hear, like, about, um, let's say, for example, a shooting going on, like, three blocks away from the donut shop. He gets convicted, but he's not involved. Has that been really common?
1: Well, we're never quite sure how common it is because we're not sure how many innocent people are actually convicted. And based on character, right. But, yeah. uh, And so that's a conviction based on character. In some regards. But what we do know is that once somebody has been arrested, and there are lots of people who have criminal records and have dealt in some difficult situations, one estimate is that 80 to 100 million people in the United States have some form of a criminal record. Since 1989, the number of arrests in this country exceed 400 million there are 10 million a year now, and that's very low compared to past years. So we have hundreds of millions of arrests. We have tens of millions of convictions. And in that midst, we have only about 300, uh, sorry, 3,200, 3,300 exonerations. For that person that you identified, Mike, he is apt to be at some point in time, if he continues to deal with questionable characters, caught up again in the legal system. When somebody is arrested, two things that supercharge the likelihood that he'll be convicted. Other than the evidence, of course, anybody who's arrested, even if he's innocent, he does look guilty because otherwise he wouldn't be arrested in the first place because you have to go through police, prosecutors, and a judge just to get to a trial are the age of the person and the question of whether or not he has a prior conviction. The people who commit a large percentage of the crimes in this country are late teenagers and people are in their early twenties. And if someone has a prior crime, it's likely, well, I don't know, likely, that might be too strong. It's likely that he'll have a greater chance of being convicted if he testifies, because the jurors will look at his prior conviction, that often comes in when somebody testifies. And unfortunately, even though they're not supposed to, it's very difficult to unring the bell, as people say, and tell the jury, uh, his prior conviction shouldn't be used by you to think that he committed the current crime. Therefore, instead of testifying and have his having his prior conviction exposed to the jury, what he might do is not testify, in which case he doesn't get to tell his story. He might be an innocent person, but he has to remain silent because of procedures in our legal system.
0: Mm-hmm. and of course you know the right to remain silent and it's also putting a lot of pressure as well too and um you also encourage uh people to speak up and it seems like the right to remain silent is just putting more pressure you know defense lawyers and uh whatever else and it's also causing a lot of fear too and if a person speaks up it's like you know what if his life is in danger you know that sort of thing where it's just like you know they're encouraged to speak up instead of uh, remain silent
1: yes they are encouraged uh to speak up. But that, of course, can be a dangerous proposition. Any prosecutor in a large city knows that, or even in a small city, where people know everybody. It's a dangerous proposition because people who are uh, under criminal indictment are very apt to strike out if they can get away with it. But my point is that instead of focusing so much on procedures as we do in our system and i believe in the procedures because they come from the constitution and judges have said various procedures like the exclusionary rule we have to throw out evidence that the police obtained in violation of the constitution there are some good reasons for that rule but there is a cost to that And when you throw out evidence that shows that somebody's guilty then that guilty person is likely to be without responsibility when that person should have responsibility. But what I'm saying is, in the Dunkin' Donut case, for example, that person who was arrested had all the procedures that he was due, but he could still be convicted. What he really needs is not more procedures or better procedures because the detective acted properly, the judge gave the jury the correct instructions, is additional evidence, not procedures. How does he find the witnesses, the people who saw him at 905 eating the donut out on the street and not being in the donut shop robbing the clerk? Mm,
0: that's a rather interesting point, too. And um, I've, I've also heard stories about that, too. And does it surprise you that the Supreme Court has never held that freestanding claim of innocence base of relief or under the Constitution? It is somewhat
1: surprising, but very few people uh, who believe in the procedures, most Americans believe in procedures and processes. We all want them if we're falsely accused, certainly don't recognize that even if all the procedures have been followed and somebody still appears to be actually innocent and let's say he's appealing his case, he was found guilty for whatever reason, but he's appealing his case. And there's some evidence that comes out that indicates that he might, in fact, be innocent and not guilty. What the courts say, and what you were quoting from, is a uh, excerpt from Justice Scalia, who said correctly in a 2009 case that we, the Supreme Court, have never held that a person who appears to be innocent, but who has had a full and fair trial and in fact, might be innocent, has the right to have a new hearing or a new trial. The Supreme Court, as you said, Mike, has never held that. And the reason is the Supreme Court has said that the Constitution only offers us, only guarantees us fair procedures. It doesn't guarantee us a correct jury verdict. Therefore, if the courts even believe, even if they have these senses, and I quoted from one federal appellate judge in the book that somebody is actually innocent the law says according to the supreme court based on its reading of the constitution that they may not uh, change the jury verdict Uh, they may not reverse the jury verdict and order a new trial for that particular person because he had all the procedures that he was due
0: Mm -hmm. and also too there's also imperative uh, of increasing funding upon approval for um public defenders and it uh, and of course you know do you think there's a really a a need for increasing um, funding for uh, public defenders?
1: Yes uh, there is a need for public defenders not only to increase their salary but also to increase the number of them. One uh, study by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel showed the following it's almost unbelievable but I can explain I think why it happens. They recorded uh, hundreds of defense lawyers who were paid by the state, not public defenders who were working full-time as a salary, but lawyers who were taking criminal cases as part of their uh, practice. They, they, the lawyers, in those hundreds of cases, almost never hired an investigator. An investigator is a right that uh, a poor defendant has. The Constitution has to provide uh, according to the Supreme Court, one investigator. But the uh, defense attorneys never hired a defense attorney to investigate. And we look at that. How could they not hire an investigator in hundreds of cases? Well, the answer is very, very simple. In Wisconsin at the time, and I think it's still the case now, public uh, the public uh, lawyers, not the public defenders, the lawyers who take on extra cases, extra criminal cases, were paid $40 an hour. Now, to some people, that seems like a decent amount of money, and it's enough to make a living if you're um, just uh, collecting the money and you don't have overhead. But to have office overhead and to run a law office where you have to pay for computer software and the like, a small business, $40 an hour is not enough to run the business. And therefore, the lawyers, let's say they spent 30 hours a week on Uh, civil cases, where they could charge more to, to companies or businesses that they represented, then they had 10 hours a week to spend on their criminal cases. They received $40 an hour for the 10 hours. But then what they decided to do, and I'm not saying this is for sure, but this is my speculation, Instead of hiring investigators and working 10 more hours, 50 hours a week, instead lawyers actually work more than that, especially defense lawyers at trial time. But just for the sake of an example, instead of working the extra uh, 10 hours for $40 an hour, they'd simply say, "No, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to spend time with my family instead." $40 an hour isn't enough uh, for me to go out and do this extra work with investigators. Mm-hmm. So the the, the structure is uh, is such that it's difficult to find exonerating evidence
0: mm-hmm. and and also the fact that um there's also some um you know changes and uh, everything else you know especially with the uh, the Richard Chauvin case um where it's just like it's so highly publicized and there were some errors in that too and um we also talked about that in the book as well too the Chauvin case it
1: was the case where the former police officer was convicted of killing uh, Floyd, Mr. Floyd, and he was convicted of murder. And everybody saw the tape, and the tape indicates that the officer was guilty of a homicide, certainly, whether it was the top count of murder or something less. I think there's some uh, question about that. We'll see what the Minnesota Supreme Court has to say on that. But what happened in the Chauvin case is that the judge decided to make the jurors anonymous. That's a very extraordinary thing in our society. I note one case, I think it's from 1979, when for the first time in American history, a judge, because the defendants were involved in organized crime and were a threat to bribe the jurors and uh, harm the witnesses, held that the jurors would be anonymous. That was the first time in our history. Since then, courts throughout the country, not uniformly, but from time to time, have held that the juries can be anonymous to protect them. In the Chauvin case, the judge went a step further, however, and it was quite extraordinary because he didn't have cause. The judge did not have cause to believe that Chauvin. Now, put aside whatever you think about Chauvin and his behavior in regard to his killing of George Floyd. That's not relevant at this point. The judge did not have any cause to believe that Chauvin was a danger to any witness. He was an isolated person for the most part who had only a defense lawyer to help him. And he was not a threat to influence the jurors, to bribe them in any way. But nonetheless, the judge made the jury anonymous because He, the judge, believed that the community outside would influence the jurors. So what I said further is that some research indicates that anonymous jurors are more likely to reach guilty verdicts. So Chauvin, while he probably consented to that anonymous jury, should have disputed the anonymity of the jury from beginning to end. And uh, from a citizenship point of view and a societal point of view, anonymous juries are only a very last resort when a defendant is likely to harm witnesses or to bribe jurors. And that wasn't the case in the Chauvin case. He was correctly found guilty of a crime, but we have to pause and think, are we satisfied with an anecdotal case, the Chauvin case, it's one case, Uh, And having a judge make our jurors anonymous when the main point of democracy is that everything uh, connected to the government should be available for public view, including Mm -hmm. the jurors. The jurors have to be accountable. Defendants have to be accountable. Lawyers have to be accountable. And jurors have to be accountable because their verdict, uh, their conviction, sends somebody to prison in Chauvin's case for 22 years.
0: Hmm. And, and of course, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't hold any certain points of um, give my opinions on the Chauvin case as well, too. Of course, he had the DNA, which has really, you know, taken the uh, prosecutions to the next level. What do you think about like, you know, uh, you know, videotape and also like, you know, body cams. Do you think that's like the next DNA? Do you think that's really helped or kind of like, kind of like hurt it?
1: I think that body cams and video are, necessary because whether we want them or not they will occur and it's probably better for police to have body cameras on from beginning to end so that cameras who see the action from the middle to the end are not presenting a stilted view of what happened and if the police are acting properly this is an obvious argument then they should be happy with body cams, and they would be satisfied that their behavior is examined from beginning to end. Body cams cannot see everything that a police officer can see in her or his peripheral vision and cannot get a sense of things outside the view of the camera. But because everybody else has cameras, I think the body cams are a necessary part of our legal system now.
0: Hmm. And also, too, another thing as well. Too, we talked about the right, right to remain silent, and also, y'all, you, know, you know, people not speaking up and everything else. It makes me think of the Fifth Amendment as well, too. Where you have a right not to testify. Do you think, um, you think they're still using it, um, you, you know, just as opposed to? Do you think it's taken the next level, or do you think it's been abused? The Fifth Amendment.
1: I don't think it's been abused. I think it's necessary. Let's take the donut shop case. I sometimes ask. Uh, People, what would you do? What should you do if, in that donut shop case, you're at home the next day or at work the next day, and the detective comes up to you and he asks you, Where were you last night? One thing you should not do is lie and say, I was at home, because some states say, like the federal government does this, that lying to a law enforcement officer can be grounds for a criminal offense. And the lie can be exposed later. So even if you didn't commit the robbery, don't lie. The other thing you could do is tell the truth. But if you tell the truth, unfortunately, that will help indicate that you're the robber, even though you weren't, because it will show that you were at the donut shop at about nine o'clock. The third opportunity is the right to remain silent. And that's what everybody should exercise without question. You should say, I decline to answer, uh, You could just say, I declined to answer. You don't have to exercise a a Fifth Amendment, but that's what the right to silence is based on. Interestingly, Mike, you make an excellent point because England has now said that there is no more right to silence. I was uh, talking with an English lawyer last year, and he was telling me about how they process cases there now. If somebody, a suspect is in the precinct, he has an obligation to speak to the police officer and make a statement. He can make a variety of statements, but he must make some statement. And then if he decides, I'm not going to speak, I'm not going to say anything all, at trial, if the case eventually goes to trial, the prosecution can say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you should hold his silence against him because when he had the opportunity to tell what happened, he remained silent and between then and now, he conjured up a story through his defense that is not really a true story. We don't do that in our country. I don't think that's probably the way to go because number one, there isn't a necessity to remain silent sometimes as in the donut shop case. But number two, the right to silence creates um, protection against the government. There's something about being able to Speak up, that's important to us. And there's something about saying, I don't have to talk to you, I can remain silent. That is an individual right that would be very difficult for Americans to relinquish because we think of both of those the right to speak up, the right to remain silent as a resistance to government authority. So even though there might be instances when we could convict more people, if we force them to speak up, there would be a big cost. In doing that, a big societal cost. In doing that, we would be losing some of our our freedom. Do we want to give it up? My sense is no.
0: Mm, and that's a really good answer. That just was brought up in a lot of cases too. And of course, you know, what would what would you do to uh, fix the system?
1: I've <laughs> proposed the plea of innocence, and this is an opportunity. Nothing would change if a defendant doesn't want to plead innocent. Everything would go along the same way. I've said if we had a formal plea of innocence, somebody who believes he is innocent, he knows that he is innocent because he knows whether he committed the crime or not. If he pleads innocent and his attorney affirms innocence, he has to, what you uh, talked about, Mike, what you were referring to is waive the right to remain silent in that instance. If he waives the right to remain silent, he then has the opportunity to speak to the prosecution and he must speak to the prosecution if he wants to compel the prosecution to go out and look for exonerating facts, to look for that witness in the lawn chair in the garage or on the stoop in the city, the alibi witness that will show that he did not commit the crime. He can't do that himself because he doesn't have the resources. Maybe he's in jail. So he needs the government to do it, either the prosecution, that's my preference, or possibly some other governmental entity. But in doing that, he has to tell his story to the prosecution because it wouldn't be fair to the prosecution or society to for everybody to say, oh, I plead innocent. Now go out and look for evidence to prove I'm innocent. If he pleads innocent, he has to have a basis for innocence, and he has to give the prosecution probable avenues of research, such as go look at 123 Main Street, because that's the location I crossed when I was eating my donut.
0: Mm, that is rather interesting. And where can we find your book at?
1: It's on Amazon, New York University
0: Press, and Barnes & Noble, and all places where books are sold. We'll certainly do that. We're here with author Tim Bakken of The uh, Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System, here on The Mike Wagner Show. And what else can we expect from you in 2022 and 23 and beyond, Tim? If I had the opportunity,
1: I would like to use the concept of a plea of innocence as a metaphor. Every one of us, I think, feels a little bit uncertain in this age, I suppose, from the war in Ukraine and uncertainty about what will happen there to the economic problems we have in the country and the insecurity we have there. Certainly people who are approaching retirement age have economic insecurity, and we just seem to have general insecurity to some extent, maybe more than we've ever had starting with COVID. so if i could expand something if i could say to people in an optimistic way let's try to make uh the plea of innocence a method where we open up and look for more facts look for more evidence and in the process we can't be righteous and say i know what the truth is but we can certainly say let's all try to find what the truth is and try to do that
0: cooperatively Mm-hmm. And certainly do with a donut. I like chocolate and jelly <laughs> myself. <so. laughs> Amen. You got it. We're here with author Tim Bakken of The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth, the American Justice System here on the Mike Wagner Show. Tim, a very big thank you, Time Always great to have you on. Looking forward to it soon. Once again, what's your website? How do people contact you? Where can people uh, purchase your book?
1: Uh, at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, New York University Press. and Anybody can find me through LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.
0: We will certainly do so. Once again, Tim, a very big thank you for your time. It's always Thanks, great to Mike. hear from you. Looking forward and soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. And definitely love to have you back. We wish you all the best and a great future with a delicious donut.
1: Thank you. Take care.